Hello, my name's Alex. Um, I'm reading the Bible today for us uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 17, <clears throat> verses 14 to 20. Uh, the story so far is that God has led Israel out of Egypt. They're in the desert and they're about to enter the promised land. And Moses is now talking to Israel and telling them how to behave when they get into the land that God has promised them. So from verse 14. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Well, it's nice to be here. Let's uh, just begin by praying. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can look at your word this morning. Thank you that it is your word. Please speak clearly to us. Um, help us to understand it. Uh, help us to trust you more, to love you better, and uh, to know how to act. Amen. To be or not to be, that is the question. Oh, no, hang on. Um, to plan B or not to plan B, that's the question that I was reading in, in a business journal a little while ago. The debate was basically that maybe you shouldn't have a plan B because having a plan B meant you were planning to fail. Instead, you should put all of your effort into making a really, really good plan A and then committing 100% to the plan A. Someone pointed out to me already this morning that as a preacher, I'm plan B. Um, <laughs> and it looks like today's passage is a plan B. It's God's plan B. I mean, look at the first couple of verses here, 14 and 15. Basically, what he's saying is, when you go into the promised land, when you've got all that you want from me, when you're happy and you're comfortable, and you decide to reject me and ask for a different king, here's how to do it. For the Israelites, the act of asking for a king, it's an act of rejection of God. They reject him three ways. Firstly, God chose Israel to be a holy nation, a people that are, are different, set apart, completely different to the nations around him. But as you read in this passage in verse 14, they decide they want a king 
like all of the other nations. Secondly, they want a king like all of the other nations. So this rejects God's plan to be the king himself. We're going to read a little bit about that soon. But as their king, God had already led them out of Egypt. As their king, he'd led them into battle. As their king, he'd given them a land of plenty. As their king, he'd given them wise instructions for how to live. He gave them all manner of gifts they hadn't earned, all the riches of his promises, and they decide they want someone else. But probably the most insidious aspect of this request is that in ancient Middle East, kings weren't, well, they weren't like tourist attractions with corgis. They were considered divine creatures who were to be worshipped. So wanting a king meant that you wanted somebody else to worship, rejecting God's command to worship him alone. Israel, when they saw the nations around them worshipping their kings, they should have been outraged. They should have been distraught. They, they should have been furiously jealous for God's glory. But they were jealous of the people around them. Well, God still wants Christians to be holy when people around us don't worship him. When they ignore him, they, they serve things like pleasure, money, power, fame, lifestyle. We should be distraught that God's not getting the worship that he deserves. Or Do we actually find ourselves jealous of them? Do we think about other people and think that they've got more than they deserve and why don't I have that? It's not fair. Do we wish that we were like those other people? We shouldn't be jealous like the Israelites were. We should be distraught when others aren't worshipping God and we should be doing everything that we can to bring their worship to him. Besides, why should we be jealous of people that are marching to hell when we've got eternal life? I want to tell you about a friend of mine. And um, actually, he lives just down the road. I drove past his house this morning and I was quite sad as I drove past. He's not someone I'm jealous of. His wife left him a few years ago. and like He could have done uh, a number of things better, but he loved his wife. He was faithful to her. He encouraged her and his children, and many other people for that matter, to follow Jesus. And he still holds Jesus as the most precious thing in his life. So when his wife told him that she wanted to separate from him, he tried to get help for them both. He, he started working part-time so that he could help look after the kids better and help care for her and dedicate more of his time to their relationship. Later, when she told him that she wanted a divorce, he kept caring for her by following up with her friends and other people that he knew were in contact with her to make sure she was still going to church somewhere and that she was okay and to check whether there was anything that he could do. He could no longer love her directly as her husband, but he still wanted to make sure that she was okay. That kind of love, it's much harder than what we normally think about of, as love, isn't it? The happy, giddy relationship where I love someone who loves me. The sort of love you see in movies or TV shows, this, the sort that 
makes you want to change channels. The sort of mushy love that's hard to watch, but really easy to do. To love someone who doesn't love you back, that's hard. And it's the sort of love that God is showing the Israelites in this passage in Deuteronomy. He's speaking about a future time where they're going to reject him and how he can still love them even then. Let me read to you 1 Samuel 8, 4 and 5, which describes the event that God is foretelling here. It says, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You're old and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. When God has given the Israelites the land he promised, they want to be rid of him. But God doesn't stop loving them. He prepares instructions for them about what sort of king they should choose so that they can still be looked after. They don't want God to love them as their king, but God wants to make sure he can still love them through the king they have. And although loving someone who doesn't love you back is difficult, I think we probably all find it most difficult to love those people who treat us badly, especially if they do it again and again. In this account in Samuel, God says that the Israelites had been treating him badly since he brought them out of Egypt, which was decades earlier. And yet God still loves them by telling them how to get a good king, a good plan B for them. So let's see how the people go with this plan B, shall we? The first instruction, appoint a king from among you whom the Lord your God chooses. Verse 15. Okay, so we read that when they first asked for a king, Samuel asked God. God chose Saul and the people appointed Saul as king. So far, so good. One out of one. And it turns out that this is the best they do. This is the longest continuous streak that the Israelites have of following this instruction, one out of one. Because next God chooses David as Saul's replacement, but only Judah appoints him as king. The rest of Israel appoint someone called Ishbosheth. And Judah and the rest of Israel have a civil war over who's going to be the king. Obviously, we know that David won that with God's help. After David came Solomon. And he was the last king before the entire nation split in two over who's going to be king. Clearly, if they're arguing and fighting like this, they're not asking God and doing uh, what he commands. So the Israelites totally fail this first instruction. You might say that one out of one actually is a spectacular failure, but it fails into a mediocrity of failure when it compares to the kings themselves and their ability to follow the instructions. Let's have a look at these instructions. The first instruction of the king in verse 16, don't acquire great numbers of horses and don't go back to Egypt to get them. Solomon had 12,000 horses from Egypt. The second instruction of the king, don't have many wives. 
Well, 1 Kings 11 says that Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and I quote, his wives led him astray. The third instruction to the king, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Just like many wives or many horses can lead the king astray, so can large amounts of silver and gold. So God warns them not to accumulate a lot of wealth. Remember, it's, it's actually wealth that's kind of led them to this position. It's when they've got all that they want, that's when they reject God as their king and ask for a king like the other nations around them. And so God doesn't want the king himself to be led astray by wealth. But we read in 2 Chronicles 1.15 that the king of Israel made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. This warning in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy is repeated, isn't it, by Jesus when he tells us that uh, where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. In other words, riches made it very difficult to put our treasure in God to follow him. In fact, the Bible teaches again and again and again and again and again the dangers of riches and that riches lead people away from God. They make us feel self-confident. We stop relying on God and stop trusting in him. If we think this isn't true for us, then we are totally kidding ourselves because Jesus was tempted by riches. The devil took Jesus into the desert and tempted him with material wealth. And if accumulating things can lead us astray, then consider this. When wealth led the kings of Israel astray, the entire nation was led astray. If you're a parent, you want to keep your kids faithful to God, we need to take note of God's teaching here. It's easy to think exactly the opposite of what the Bible says, to think that by accumulating wealth, we give our kids security. But when we accumulate wealth and build security for our children, we encourage ourselves and them to feel secure in wealth, which is fleeting rather than trusting in the eternal God. The wealth that we accumulate, it's no less dangerous for us and our children than the wealth that the kings of Israel accumulated was for them and the nation. Okay, instruction number four. The king is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, verse 18. It's a very specific instruction from God, isn't it? It spells out the when, the how, and the who. When? When the king first takes his throne. How? It's to be copied from the priest's master copy onto a scroll. And the who, the king himself must do it. For the king to write his own version of the law on a scroll, it would have presumably taken many weeks and been pretty painful by the end of it, I imagine. But it would have made him very familiar with the law, wouldn't it? And once he'd done writing it, he, then he had to maintain and build on that familiarity by keeping it with him and reading it every day, verse 19. This, this was how the king was going to learn to revere God and follow him, had to make sure that the people of Israel continued to live as God's people despite having a human king. This instruction reminds me in a very bizarre way 
of a show that we used to watch years ago called Family Feud. You probably remember it. It hasn't been on television for quite a while. Our family used to watch it together for a little while, but after a while we gave up because you know, when the host asked questions, we'd often find ourselves giving the answers out loud. And my wife in particular would give them quite loudly. I think she thought she was helping the contestants, that, that if she, she spoke loud enough, they'd hear her and they'd get the hint and they'd, they'd know how to answer. And if they gave a different answer, then she'd try louder because they obviously weren't hearing her. So just have to yell louder and that'll help. The ad breaks would come as such a relief. But just before the ad break, there was a real formulaic approach to what they did. They had something called the viewer question that asked the question that the viewers were meant to answer. Um, and then they'd give the answer at the end of the ad break to make sure that you kept watching after the ads. But the viewer's question, it was quite telling about the assumed intelligence of the average person watching this show because it was something like this. Name something you put on your toothbrush. Like you have to wait for the end of the ad to find out that it's toothpaste. And one night the viewer question was this. This genuinely was the viewer question. What do you do if you want to remember something? What do you think the answer was? You write it down. Of course you do. If you want to remember something, you write it down. When, when you're at a restaurant or a cafe and the waiter comes out with a notepad and you give him your order and he doesn't write it down, do you wonder whether he's going to remember? I, I always think, I wonder what I'm going to end up eating. Or you've given instructions, maybe at work or at home, and, and the person, they don't write them down, even though they could, and you, you think, Oh, I wonder if they're going to remember these instructions. Quite frankly, I wonder if they even care if they remember. So when was the last time that we wrote down scriptures? When did we last write down something that the Bible said to us, something that we decided that we really need to do as a result of God's word? Are we serious about letting God's word guide our lives? Do we, do we care if we remember? Are we writing them down? We write reminders for ourselves, at least I do, all the time about all sorts of things that we've got to do. If we're doing that, why would we think that scriptures are the one thing that we don't need to write down to remember? Or perhaps it indicates that we just don't really care as much about remembering God's word and his instructions to us as the other things that are crowding our lives. Now, perhaps you're thinking, but the scriptures are already written down. That's true, but that was true with the kings too, and yet they were still demanded, commanded to take a copy. Or perhaps we think, I've already got my own copy true, but the kings could easily have gotten their own copy without having to write it themselves, and yet God still commands them to write it themselves. We could start by writing things down in church, bring along a notepad and sermons on Sundays, or maybe use the same one in quiet times. Just write things down, remember them. 
meditate on God's word and think about what he wants us to do. Well, how do you think the kings might have gone with this instruction? There's a pattern developing here. When King Josiah became king, which was about 460 years into the kingships, he found an old book discarded in an unused part of the temple. The book had been lost for about three or 400 years. It was the book of Deuteronomy. This book, this book that the king was meant, each king was meant to write down as soon as they took the throne. It's incredible, isn't it? That's all the instructions. It, they, they failed them all just terribly. Don't gather many horses, not from Egypt. How's 12,000? Don't have too many wives. Well, what about 700? How does that sound? I say it's a good thing they didn't have family feud in those days. Don't accumulate a lot of silver and gold. It was as common as stones. And write your own copy of the law as soon as you become king. And they lost it for 300 years. They forgot it existed at all. How could the kings get things so wrong? But, you know, perhaps the more difficult question is how could God's plan fail so badly? Even the kings God chose were terrible at following these instructions. And it's bad enough that God's on what seems to be plan B, but his plan B now looks like a failure too. Like, why didn't God give them a king like the one he described? Why didn't he give them a, a king who lived by the law, who chose to remain poor for the benefit of his people? Why didn't he give them a godly, true king? Why didn't he give them a king through whom he could love them, despite them rejecting him? Well, actually, he did. He sent Jesus. Jesus was an Israelite chosen by God. He was humble. He didn't accumulate riches. When Jesus was tempted in the desert three times by Satan, three times he quoted the book of Deuteronomy demonstrating that he had studied this book very carefully as God commanded the kings to do. And he led the people in God's love despite their rejection of him. Jesus came to fulfill God's promises. He fulfills God's prophecy of a good king in Deuteronomy. He was the perfect king, the perfect plan B, of course he wasn't plan B. God doesn't need a plan B. God's plan was always that God himself would be their king. And so we see in Jesus that God himself will be their king. Jesus was God's perfect plan A. He restored God's kingdom. He reestablished himself as king. And he did it in a way that demonstrates God's love for rebellious people who keep rejecting him just like the example of my friend who kept loving a wife who didn't want him. But God does it perfectly. He demonstrates God's patience, gentleness, humility, his righteousness and power, his total control of all history through Jesus. So what looked like God's plan B is actually an immensely rich plan A. It's hugely encouraging, isn't it, that, that in reality, God's in control even as 
people reject him. His plan is complete, it's perfect, it's loving, merciful and rich. And it's a plan with a promise. Let's have a look at this very last verse in the Deuteronomy passage, verse 20. It says, the king and his descendants will reign for a long time. Again, Jesus perfects that promise. The promise to us is that the king and his descendants will reign not just for a very long time, but forever. Revelation 22, verse 3 to 5 says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Through Jesus, we are the descendants of the King who will reign forever. What a nice place to finish. But there's also something very sobering about what we've looked at today. There is no plan B, never was and never will be. So if we don't accept Jesus as King, there's no hope for us. This is true for us. It's true for the people around us. There is no plan B for our husbands or wives if they reject Jesus or wander away from him. There's no plan B for our children, for our friends and their children, for our relatives, for our colleagues, for our staff, our boss, the people we know from school, people that uh, we asked for SRE teachers for this morning, for our neighbours, for the people walking around us in Epping right now. And we also need to take note of what happened with the kings. We need to remain faithful followers of Jesus. We need to learn from these kings of Israel and not make the same mistakes. Be careful not to focus on accumulating wealth. Don't accumulate much. Don't put ourselves and our families in jeopardy. And we need to saturate ourselves in the scriptures daily. Write them down. Commit them to memory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a loving God who loves us despite our rejection of you. To the point of sending Jesus... Thank you for the richness of your plan and your love for us and that through the promises brought to us through Jesus, we can be with you forever, being loved. Amen.